Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 102, Dr. Brian Leftow on Perfect Being Theology. Since 2002, Dr. Brian Leftow has been the Nolith Professor of the Philosophy of the Christian Religion at Oriel College, Oxford University. He earned his PhD from Yale University, and he taught for many years at Fordham in New York City before moving to Oxford. He's written over 90 professional articles and book chapters on metaphysics, medieval philosophy, and philosophical theology. And he's published two influential books, Time and Eternity and God and Necessity. He's here again today with us to talk about the idea of perfect being theology. Dr. Leftow, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Glad to be here. Dr. Leftow, you've written in several places about what philosophers call perfect being theology. Can you tell us what that method of doing theology is? Basically, it tries to fill out the concept of God by thinking about what it would take to be an absolutely perfect being. So the idea is that if you can come up with a coherent idea of what would be the perfect way to be, that is the way God is. So, for example, if you think that a perfect being would have power, you conclude that God has power. If you think that a perfect being would have not just power, but perfect power, you conclude that God would have perfect power. If you think that perfect power would include being able to do absolutely everything, being omnipotent, you conclude that God is omnipotent. That's roughly the way that it works. Sort of simplified because, you know, I haven't dealt with the question of possible conflicts among these perfections yet. So the idea is that if God is as great as a being could be, then aren't we in all cases comparing potential attributes and saying, well, which would be greater to have or would it be greater to have or lack this attribute? Yes. Now, are we comparing, in your view, metaphysical possibilities, or are we comparing just different ways of thinking about God? And so the method is essentially we should think about God as highly as we're able. There's a sense in which we're comparing ways we can think about God in order to get at the metaphysical possibilities. What I mean is this. If you're a perfect being theologian, you hold as fixed in your mind that nothing that's going to be true about God is going to contradict logic or contradict mathematics, at least these are the constraints that I put on when I do it, or, or contradict things that we know are necessarily true about creatures. You know, nothing about God is going to not make it not true that water is H2O, for example. But beyond that, we're using perfect being thinking as an instrument of discovery about what is really possible. If I am a perfect being thinker, and I can think of a fuller and more impressive conception of what God's omnipotence would be that is compatible with logic and mathematics and the full body of necessary truth about creatures, then the very fact that I can think about God coherently that way tells me that that's possible. I'm saying the way to think about what's possible for God is to think about what is the best way we can think God to be. We're getting to the metaphysical possibilities, but we're taking it for granted that the way to do that is to think about just hypotheses about the best way to be. So we're crossing off what seems contradictory, and we're crossing off things that are impossible because of other things that we know, and then we're working with things that seem possible to us? Right. 
then we're trying to say, well, if there was a being that was as great as a being could possibly be, would that being have this feature or that feature? Say, omnipotence versus somewhat limited power. Right. Dr. Lefta, we all know that this is a prominent feature in the work of St. Anselm, and you have a book coming out about him, but how far back in history do we find this method of perfect being theology? Just about as far as you find philosophical reflection about deity at all. The earliest perfect being theologian I know of was Plato, the Republic of Book Two. He reasons about the gods that since they are the best and the most perfect possible, well, he thinks it follows that they don't change it anyway. That might or might not be a controversial argument, but you can see him clearly trying to do perfect being theology. The fact that it's of non-Christian origin might set some people off. They might say, hey, but, you know, why think this is applicable by Christians? Maybe this is just part of a wrong-headed way of thinking about God. What about its history in Christian thinking? It entered Christian theology almost as soon as there was Christian theology. Christian thinkers in the, in the classical period, the majority adopted what Origen called the Egyptian spoils attitude. The idea, it, that's a metaphor that comes obviously from the biblical story of the Exodus. You know, the Israelites were leaving Egypt and they despoiled the Egyptians. They took away their gold and their silver for use in building, for example, their religious articles to serve God. And Origen said, just as the Israelites took away the gold and the silver of the Egyptians, we can take away the gold and the silver of the pagans. We can take away whatever is useful to us in the service of God. It, that it came from the pagans doesn't make it unuseful for serving God, any more than the fact that it was Egyptian gold and silver made it unuseful for making articles to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. With that precedent, I don't see how you can sort of disqualify things of pagan origin for the service of God. So the question is not what, where perfect being theology originated, but simply... Is it a good thing? Does it work serving? Would that be a genetic fallacy? It, it comes from a non-Christian source, so therefore it's a non-Christian or anti-Christian procedure? That would be such a fallacy. And notice what else that would give you. I mean, I mean, Frege was not a Christian. Aristotle was not a Christian. Should Christians therefore not use logic? Some people have thought so. Uh, yeah, yeah, and unfortunately some of them are in theology faculties somewhere in the UK, but uh, <laughs> I don't have anything to do with them. Of course, people that denounce logic they turn right around and use logic all the time usually not well but that's true how do you get away from it yeah just like how do you get away from human reason in general right right it's 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 a self-undercutting strategy it can't be consistently maintained Dr. Leftow, do you find perfect being theology being used anywhere in the Bible? I don't think you see the biblical authors doing theology of any kind. There, there are two senses in which I mean that. One is that we almost take it as axiomatic that theology is reflection on the content of the Bible. They weren't reflecting on the content of the Bible, they were writing it. The second thing is that you don't often see them sort of making 
arguments for conclusions about what attributes God has or, or arguments that God exists. Uh, God, you know, they, they take themselves to be receiving from God the information about what attributes he has and what he's up to and what he, what he has to tell them. So they don't need to argue it out. They're receiving it in a much more direct fashion. But we, what we do find in, in the Bible are statements that license perfect being theology for we who are not in their privileged position. We find them saying, for example, that God's knowledge is perfect. Well, right, God's knowledge is perfect. So how do we fill that out? Well, we think about what perfect knowledge would be. It seems like a natural procedure. We see them saying that God's way is perfect. In other words, that everything he does, his moral character is perfect. Well, how do we fill that out? Uh, again, we do that by trying to think about what it would be to be morally perfect. You know, they're, they're not filling it out that way. They're just giving us the revelation they've received, which is that God is this way. It's our later job to fill it out. Yeah, and Jesus says in one place, be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm not sure that's a piece of perfect being theology exactly, but I mean, apparently if we're faced with a course of action, we can ask ourselves, would a perfect being do this? Would a morally perfect being do this? And if the answer is no, then we're supposed to avoid that action, right? Right. I see it kind of hovering in the background of certain New Testament passages where they assume that God has a certain attribute, like, for instance, immortality or eternity or uh, no limits on his knowledge. And I mean, if you were to ask them, they might, well, isn't it obvious? God is perfect. How could he have limited knowledge? I don't know. I, I at least speculate that way. I don't, I don't see them explicitly going through the moves, but the Greek influence was kind of impossible to get away from in the first century, I think, even for Palestinian Jews. I think that's true. You know, here we are strictly into the realm of speculation, and what we're speculating about is what exactly is the mode in which they receive revelation? Did they receive God's revelation as a little voice in their heads? Did they receive it by doing something like philosophical reflection that God in some way guided? Uh, we have no way to know. I mean, it could be just as you say, or it could be some other way. Dr. Leftow, can you give us some examples of divine attributes which, in your view, this method of reasoning leads us to? Yes. Certainly it leads us to see God as omniscient and omnipotent. There are minority voices in perfect being theology that, would, that, that have historically said no to those things, but they are very much a minority. I think it leads us to the claim that God exists necessarily. And one that I hold that it leads us to, although many people disagree, is that I think it leads us to see God as timeless. By timeless, I meant atemporal. Dr. Leftow, in practice, do you find that different practitioners of perfect being theology come up with contradictory results? And if so, what, what do we do then? What recourse do we have? They do tend to come up with contradictory results. And that is, in a sense, inevitable, because perfect being theology, you can look at it as a machine. And what the machine cranks out depends in part on what you feed into it. We feed in our own intuitions about what's better and what's worse. And people do have different intuitions about that. Where there is a disagreement, one thing you can say is that, well, at least perfect being theology tells us that God has the disjunction of the disagreeing attributes. In other words, if I believe that God is timelessly eternal and someone else believes that God is temporally eternal, and we both try and get perfect being theology arguments for this, 
then at the least we can conclude that perfect being theology tells us that God is eternal, although it might not settle the question uh, of which way he's eternal. A second thing that you can do is to follow the methods that philosophers use generally. Try and pump one another's intuitions toward one or another conclusion. Is this really better? Well, think about it this way. Well, is that really better? Think about it that way. You know, thought experiments, little bits of reasoning, and we can just try and jolly each other along. Uh, You know, historically it has not produced anything like uh, complete agreement, but it's the best we can do. This isn't the only method that we have, right? As Christians, can't we bring in divine revelation to settle it if it's an argument among Christians? At one level, we can. And in fact, one perfect being project just starts from divine revelation. It says, okay, I take it from the Bible that God is all-powerful. I don't have to try and justify that in any a priori way. I'm simply going to try and use perfect being theology to say what it is to be all-powerful. The thing is, the Bible won't settle all the disputes that perfect being theology gets itself into. I mean, it tells us that God is all-powerful, but it doesn't say what that means. It tells us that God is eternal, but doesn't tell us in any direct way whether that's temporal or atemporal eternity. And it has nothing at all to say about anything like necessary existence. So it's of limited value in settling these more specialized disputes where they exist. And in some cases, it doesn't speak to the dispute at all. But your point is, if it, even if it doesn't answer all our questions, it still might answer some of them. Right. It's just it, it won't answer all. And where it does answer, it doesn't tell us everything a perfect being theologian would want to know. Dr. Lefthal, I would like to try out a few examples on you of conclusions that people might come to using this method of reasoning and and see sort of what you think about them and how you would react. These are all, by design, controversial examples. You already mentioned uh, one that God is timeless in the sense that, you know, no temporal predicate applies to him, that he's strictly outside, so to speak, outside of time versus eternal in the sense that he always has existed, exists now, and always will exist. That's one that Christian philosophers have spilled a lot of ink on, and, and you're on the timeless side of that one, uh, the more classical side. Here are some other controversial examples I came up with. Someone might reason like this. Now, this isn't a Christian example, but you might say, well, it's a good thing to be male. It's a good thing to be female. So we think that God is both male and female. You know, you see this in some Hindu statues. You have a figure that's divided down the middle, and the left side is woman, and the right side is man. Yeah. You see Shiva or Vishnu portrayed this way sometimes. How would you respond to that type? You know, what if a Christian or just anybody, a Hindu or someone else, said reasoned in that way? How, how would you proceed with the argument? I've never actually thought about this one. I suppose my first inclination might be to say something like this. There are good things about being male. There are good things about being female. But it might be that there are better things about being beyond that whole distinction. Male and female are, well, there's certainly distinctions tied very closely to having a body of a certain sort. And having a body is, 
I would argue, you know, inferior in many ways to being a purely spiritual being. Uh, in a purely spiritual being, it's not clearly that sex, it's not clear that sexual differentiation can apply at all. So what you're doing is saying, okay, those are both good attributes. I mean, if you had a child that was born that was neither male nor female, you would think they're missing something good. So they are good attributes, but maybe a perfect being would have other attributes that would require that it's neither male nor female. Right. Would have some attribute that's better to, than having any attribute that involves being male or female and is incompatible with that. Right. And by male and female, we're talking about the sense in which it requires having a body of a certain sort. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a pretty good answer. A lot of times people will say that in Christianity, God is male. I, I disagree. There's a Christian tradition of using male imagery and male pronouns for God, but I don't think they've ever been taken literally. Uh, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that's ever been taken literally. How about this? Now, this example comes from my uh, philosophy colleague of mine, who so happens is a Jewish atheist. And uh, he says, if you do perfect being theology, you'll come up with the result that God is able to do anything, but then also you'll come up with the result that it's not the case that God can do anything because God's perfect. And here's an action, stealing little children's candy just for the fun of it. So God can and can't do that, which is to say the concept of God is contradictory. The concept of a perfect being that is, is self-contradictory. It just collapses. It's like the concept of a square circle. Okay. Uh, your friend is bringing up what is probably the hardest apparent incompatibility between divine attributes to deal with. And, and you stated it pretty well, so I, I won't restate it. When I first introduced perfect being theology, I said that I was giving a simplified version because I wasn't dealing yet with what you do in the case of conflicts between prima facie divine attributes. The full method of perfect being theology has, so to speak, two stages. The first stage just comes up with sort of what you might call a wish list. The wish list is just any attribute you can think of that you might think would be appropriate to a perfect being. It's just maximum degree of you know, goodness, power, knowledge, duration, all the rest. Once you've got that list, you enter into the second stage, which is asking yourself this question. Could any being have all of these attributes at once? If you come to the conclusion that yes, some being could have them all, then you're home free. You've got your concept of God. If you come to the conclusion that some are incompatible with others, you've got a problem. One way you can deal with the problem is by trying to show that the incompatibility is only apparent. But suppose that it's not. Well, then you have to bear in mind that perfect being theology is, as I practice it at any rate, not going to be something that deals in making exceptions to logic or claiming that contradictions can be true or anything like that. You're looking for the idea of the greatest possible being. If no possible being could be both omnipotent and absolutely morally perfect, then you've got to conclude that the greatest possible being is going to be either not quite one or not quite the other. Uh, and you just try and work out which one you'll have to qualify a bit to sort of get the most perfect overall possible being. If you can't figure that out, then you're left saying, well, perfect being theology gives you a disjunction. It says that either the perfect being is omnipotent and a little bit less than morally perfect, or the perfect being is morally perfect and a little bit less than omnipotent, but it doesn't suffice to settle that question. That doesn't show that perfect being theology issues and contradictions. It simply shows that there 
our limits to what it might be able to do, given our own intuitions as the input that let us try and resolve the conflicts. And it certainly doesn't show that God is not a perfect being, or the perfect being theology doesn't describe God. All it shows is that there might be limits to the conclusions that we can deduce about God, giving this method. So your answer is that we might end up revising our concept a little bit or clarifying our concept of what would be involved in being a perfect being. And so if we start off with the concept and we run into a contradiction, that's not the end of the game. Right. It just means you moved on to the second stage of the game. Yeah. Some of my atheist philosopher friends, they seem to think that well, look, the idea is pretty fixed. They, they call it a 3-0 being, omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent. And they, look, it's just obvious what the definitions of those are. Omniscient is knows everything. Omnipotent is can do everything. And omnibenevolent is always does good, never does wrong, something like that. And so they would say, look, take those last two, never does wrong, presumably not capable of doing wrong, and then that conflicts with the ability to do anything. So in a nutshell, your answer is a perfect being can't do some things. My answer was that is one tenable output of the second stage of perfect being theology. It might not be the best one. I'm just saying it's a viable thing that has to be considered. Your atheist friends should be disabused of their naivete. It's not a slam dunk what any of those three attributes really means. Um, it's a very difficult matter to puzzle out exactly what they mean. And while it's taken as given that in some sense God has the three O's, it is not taken as given in any way what that sense is. That's left as a matter for research. The Bible doesn't settle it, and as the Bible doesn't settle it, it's left open to theology to find the best account that it can. I find that my atheist philosopher friends, well, they fall into two camps. Some of them are really uninterested in any discourse about God or anything about it. It's just passe to them. But a lot of them think about it quite a lot. And not only do they think about it a lot, they, they have really strong intuitions, really strong convictions about how a perfect being would act or how a perfect being would be. And I don't know, sometimes you have to take your foot off the gas pedal, that <laughs> be a little less sure about those things. Yeah. That's true for both atheists and theists. I mean, there, there are limits to how well we're going to understand what a perfect being is, given that we've only got ideas we've drawn from imperfect beings to work with. In your own life as a philosopher using this, can you think of an example where you shifted, you changed your view about what's implied by a perfect being theology? Or has it more just been not so much turning around and going a different direction, but just kind of more finely analyzing the attributes? My... Analysis of what perfect goodness is has definitely been affected by a desire to try and solve the sort of problem that we were discussing a moment ago. It emerged in thinking about William Rowe's attempt to show that there couldn't be a perfect God of the sort that Christians believe in. Rowe's idea was essentially that God's goodness is a maximizing goodness, that whatever you might think is good enough for God to do well if he could have done better, then the first thing isn't really good enough for God to do. God's always got to go for the best or for evermore if more is to be had, but there is no best. Now, if you start out with that idea of God's goodness, you're left quickly to the conclusion that no world is good enough for God to make, even if there's no evil in it at all, because there could always have been a better world. My way of dealing with that is to center my definition of God's goodness, not on, so to speak, 
how much good God actually does on his moral record, but on his possession of perfect degree virtues. And a perfect degree virtue is defined in such a way that it need not always be manifested to the maximal way it can be manifested. At least that's how I define it. Suppose you've got that idea about what perfect goodness is. That might lead you, leave you some leeway for reconciling perfect goodness with omnipotence. To paraphrase the basic move, rather than thinking that God always does what's best, understanding perfect goodness in that way, the problem with that is sometimes there's not a best. There's right. just an infinite series of gradations of better and better. Right, in which case nothing would ever be good enough for God to do. So, yeah, if you pick any one point, there's always a, a better thing to do. So, rather than go down that dead end, uh, why not think of God's moral perfection in terms of his having moral virtues in the to the highest degree or in the best way, something like that. And so he's right. perfectly, I don't know, faithful, perfectly compassionate and so on. But then those are compatible with doing a vast range of actions where there could be better ones. And maybe it's a matter of free choice, just quite where you decide to draw the line. Right, right. Like if you, I don't know, if you give your kid a scoop of rice, you're serving them a meal I mean, look, you you greedy SOB, you could have gave him one more grain, you know? Right. But no, a good parent just scoops out and, yeah, you always could have gave him one grain more. I mean, there's kind of a vague limit there. It doesn't mean you're anything other than a very good or even a perfect parent. That just doesn't count against that. Yeah. I've met atheist philosophers who are, they don't believe in God, supposedly, but they'd, they'd really have a beef with God if God existed because he allowed their girlfriend to break up with them. Yeah. And he should have yeah. stopped that because that was terrible. Right. Or you should have, you know, let him get a higher paying job, which a common complaint, complaint of philosophers. Yeah. Uh, Not always of atheist philosophers. I mean, Christians have the same sort of beefs. True. But in this case, the Christian me was the skeptical one about, you know, my friend's ability to discern God's ways. You know, no, perfect being would never do that. Well, I'm right. not so sure. I mean, why not? Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm glad that you mentioned the idea of God having the moral virtues and having them in the best way, because here's another application of perfect being theology, which is controversial. Some would say that you can use perfect being theology to prove that if there's a God, then God has to be tripersonal, that if God is really perfect, perfection entails either being tripersonal or at least not being one person or oneself. The very distinguished philosopher that you succeeded as the Nolith Chair at Oriel College there, Richard Swinburne, somebody we both uh, greatly respect and love. Right, right. Um, he has argued that in, in this way, and I'm not sure if it's through Swinburne, but I've seen this kind of argument from perfection popping up all over the place in popular level work, in particular as a stick to beat Muslims with. You know, your God is is just obviously imperfect and we can show it just from reason alone. So there's, there's two kinds of arguments that I see out there and I want to toss them out to you and see what you think. Well, let's do them one at a time. The first one is God is essentially perfectly loving. And so God must be by his essence, perfectly loving. He must be in a loving interpersonal relationship with at least one other person. But if this is by his essence, it doesn't depend on creation, then God has to be more than one person. 
Does this show that the conception of God as a perfect person just collapses into incoherence? Um, the, the threat would not be to the idea that God is a perfect person, but to the idea that God is a perfect solitary person, or that God is a perfect something that involves only one person. Mm-hmm. I'm really not sure what I think about this argument against. Again, this is something I haven't really thought about before, except in the context of criticizing Swinburne's version of it. I mean, I haven't sort of decided for myself what I think about all arguments of that kind. One thing that I might at least wonder about is whether it really deserves to take as such a sure thing that the most perfect form of love is interpersonal love. It's certainly the best form of love we know about, but I would hesitate to say that I know what all possible forms of love are. Could it be at least possible that there is some relationship of love such that if a single, simple, solitary God stood in that relationship to himself, he would be the most perfectly loving being? I can't rule that out. Aquinas has a very general definition of love. He says that to love someone or something is to will it good and will an appropriate relationship of union to that thing. He also thinks that God loves himself because God wills to himself the great good of being God and being himself. And, of course, God stands in the closest possible relationship of union to himself because he's identical with himself. If you looked at it that way, it would not seem impossible for there to be a single solitary being that didn't beget or produce a second being, and yet was perfectly loving. Now, I don't know whether anything I've just said is any more than hot air. I mean, I'm just literally just on my feet here, just speculating. Mm -hmm. But unless you could give a pretty firm reason for thinking that there could not be any better kind of love than interpersonal love, I think you'd have to say that that argument was at best questionable, because it depends on the idea that a perfectly loving being would have to be a perfectly interpersonally loving being. Interesting. I expected you to be a little more hostile. Uh, You're saying, well, I'm not sure. I I don't think the argument works. I'm open-minded that maybe there could be a perfect being argument um, for the Trinity, but In your essay, Anti-Social Trinitarianism, you criticized uh, Richard Swinburne's version, but this is a little bit uh, different. And you're saying, well, one answer could be maybe the best kind of love is self-love? Not necessarily the best kind of love is self-love, but that the best kind of love is some relationship in which you can stand to yourself. I mean, self-love has a kind of a connotation about it. Uh, it. It sounds egotistical. You might love yourself, but not because it's yourself. Uh, you might love, you know, God might be the absolute, I believe is, God is absolute goodness itself. And if God loves absolute goodness himself, itself, because it is absolute goodness itself, maybe that's the best kind of love at all, love of all. And it's only incidentally self-love, so to speak. Uh, Am I right about this? Well, I have no idea, but it's at least something worth discussing. The thing I didn't like about Swinburne's version of the argument was that the way he developed it, there seemed to be no logical stopping point. Christians want to say there are just three persons in the Trinity and no more. Swinburne's version was, well, perfect love requires that there be another person to love, so the Father would beget another person, the Son. And perfect love also requires that these two people have yet a third person to love, and so they must beget the Spirit, because there's a special thing about two people loving a third that wouldn't be otherwise realized. 
my thought about that, which is fine, well, there are also special things about three people loving a fourth that would otherwise be unrealized if there weren't a fourth person. So it seems you should have a fourth person and a fifth person and so on infinitum. If you're going to argue a trinity a priori, you've got to have an argument that gives you an a priori basis for stopping at three. I don't see that this sort of argument gives you that. That was my problem with Swinburne's version. That's interesting. And, it, you know, there's actually a parallel response given by medieval Islamic philosophers. Some Christians tried to sell the Trinity as basically just three divine attributes. I forget which three. I think it was uh, being for the Father, knowledge for the Son, and love. So it's a takeoff on, a, on Augustine. I think it was being, knowledge, and love. And God is, God uh, has knowledge, and God loves. And they're saying, look, that's just a trinity. Some of the Islamic philosophers that I remember, might have also been Jewish philosophers, I'm not sure. But some of them said, yeah, but there might be a whole bunch of other attributes. How can you possibly stop at three? Yeah, I'm not sure there was a good answer to that. Um, yeah. Nor that that's the right way to take the Catholic Trinity tradition. No, no, I'm pretty sure it's not. Yeah. Uh, you, you actually, th thank you for that, though. You, you just answered a historical question for me that I've always had. Maimonides has this weird argument where he says at one point, God must be simple because distinct positive attributes would give you polytheism. I've always wondered why he thought that. He must have this argument in the back of his mind, and he thinks of the Trinity as a form of polytheism. It could be. Yeah, it could be. Maimonides had read a lot of Islamic yeah. theology. I think that was his, one of his main influences, actually. Yeah, to this popular argument, I'm inclined to say that there's, a, there's an equivocation on the term perfectly loving. My response would be having the character trait, by your essence, of being perfectly loving doesn't entail that you are perfectly loving as an action. It's that you're the kind of person who's disposed to that. So then it just seems to me that it's, it doesn't follow that he would actually be loving. I do agree that God would necessarily love himself. If God's the greatest being there could be, you've got to be happy about this. I mean, how could you not love it? If he's all-knowing, he's not in any selfish sense, but he's going to know how great he is and value himself so isn't that loving himself? That, that seems right. I would even grant that uh, love of another maybe is better or generally better, but I don't see how being perfectly loving requires being in that relationship to another. Well, I want to come back at you a little on that one, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, Aquinas distinguished between the more and less perfect versions of virtues. The less perfect version of an attribute like generosity is just sort of a liability to act generously if an occasion presents itself. But the more perfect is not just a liability, but also an active impulse toward being generous. It seeks out the occasions to be generous mm -hmm. rather than just mm -hmm. having to, to react to them rightly if, if they come about. Mm -hmm. And I think you could make that same kind of distinction with the disposition to be perfectly loving, you know, the thing you were wanting to say God had. If he's a perfect being, he's got the perfect version of that. And I do think there's at least some plausibility to saying that means he would actively seek to love rather than simply being the sort of person who would be loving if he was in a relationship. So there might be more mileage in the argument than your response is giving room for. Yeah, I think that's right, that, that um, having that virtue does entail in the right circumstances that you do actively pursue 
it's not only that you're capable of it, but it also includes a disposition in, in certain circumstances to pursue a loving relationship. But I mean, I wouldn't want to say that it entails love of another because you can always have a power and a disposition and not actualize it, right? That's part of our concept of a power, yeah. generally speaking. Certainly that's true. Uh, but then two problems crop up. One is, well, if God's not going to actualize it, there's got to be some other factor in his psychology that, so to speak, overrules the tendency to do so. And, and, and you, you're left wondering what that could be. And the other is, you might reason this way, well, you know, if it's really, God, if God's really got the perfect degree of this attribute, well, isn't it then going to be such a strong tendency toward actualizing it that even omnipotence can't get in its way? Now, I don't know whether what I've just said is right. As a matter of fact, I, I want to say to everyone in your audience, everything I've said for the last 10 minutes about this argument is completely off the top of my head. And it might be that if I thought about it tomorrow, I'd say, boy, did I blow it. There wasn't one shred of even plausibility about it. But at least it's a thought worth thinking about. That's perfectly fair. We're, we're philosophers. We can speculate. We can take it back later. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to be... I, yeah. <laughs> I don't want this to be all that survives of me on YouTube. <laughs> oh, I don't think you have to worry about that. What you mentioned before, that when you're able to do good, generally there's uh, quite a range of ways to express that. And I don't see why there has to be anything in your psychology that determines you to a specific way. Even there are cases where you and I are virtuous in a certain way, but we're still free not only to activate different amounts of goodness, but we're free even to act or not. It's just that the virtue really doesn't require in a specific instance that we say it's generosity. Leftow is a generous guy. He's always, I don't know, giving money away. But this one particular time, he just doesn't do it. Yeah, he just freely declined to do it. And I don't, I don't really see why there has to be a, it's part of our control over how our lives go that we, we just have that leeway consistent with the, with the virtue. But anyway, I'm out on a limb too. So to take us back to popular interests, though, where we were, I also find this argument out there that a unipersonal God would be lonely, but a perfect being can't be lonely, and so God is not unipersonal. What's your first response to that? I'm very unsure. Again, this is just not what I've thought about before. Here's a thought that cuts against that. Loneliness seems to imply a sense of lack, a sense of need, which seems to imply some kind of imperfection. Now, I'll admit that if I were by myself, I would be very lonely uh, after a while, but that's so because I don't have the resources within myself to be perfectly happy, and that is so in turn because I'm an imperfect and limited being. 
Could it be that things are fundamentally different with a perfect being, that although we can't imagine this, maybe a perfect being is precisely the sort of thing that could be perfectly happy by itself because it has no needs, no lacks, no imperfections. Again, this is just all speculation. The first thoughts I've ever had on this subject. So I'd, I'd want to test that argument quite a bit before I went along with it. You might think it's part of God's independence, part of his aseity as a perfect being, that he is just perfectly content in himself, and there's nothing that can happen that could ruin his life, make his life not worth living. That's how I go on that one. What's God going to need? Like, he, he doesn't have our visceral human need for company, you know, to hear a human voice, to, to get a hug, that sort of thing. I think we're I think we're basically in agreement on this one. Yeah. Uh, and you know, l- l- let me by the way just sort of say this for the audience. I am a trinitarian. I-, I I have no doubt at all that God exists in three persons. It's just I'm not sure that these are good arguments to try and show that this is so. Hmm. Hmm. Fair enough. If it's part of standard Christian theology that God was free to not create, then that means there's a possibility that God had never created anything at all. But we don't want to say that that means that, you know, he would be very sad and and lonely. You don't want to say that his loneliness compelled him to create, that he was, you know, desperate for some company, so he whips him up. Um, But, yeah, Yeah. this seems to go along and reinforce the thought that part of perfection is being happy in oneself, being sufficiently well off. That would be the right response to this. It's not really independent of the second argument. You know, I wish that there was a simple a priori argument that we could give to just show the Christian view of God is the best to refute all non-Christian views, but I just, I just don't see it. I'm at least very unsure that there's such a thing, and in being that way, I, I stand with one of the greatest of all Christian theologians, Aquinas. You know, there were these arguments around in his day also, and, and his comment on them was, we shouldn't even be trying to do this, because when we give a bad argument for the Trinity, unbelievers just laugh and think that it's nonsense. That's a risk that you take. I mean, I guess you can, you can explicitly say, hey, I'm not saying this is the only basis for this belief, but here's one basis. But yeah, if you put it all on one philosophical argument, somebody finds a devastating problem with your philosophical argument, then it looks like you've hurt the cause. Yeah, and, and Aquinas was, you know, Aquinas thought there were definitely no good arguments on the subject that were a priori. I'm at least undecided, and I do think there's that risk if we give bad arguments. Dr. Leftow, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. This week's thinking music has been Wake Up by Kai Engel. You can hear that whole track or download it at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it on social media. And if you're an iTunes user, please subscribe, rate us, and leave us a brief written review there. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>